Would you turn with me to the book of Acts chapter 4? We're continuing on our journey through the book of Acts. It is the work of the Holy Spirit in glorifying Christ, in building his church. We know that it wasn't really the acts of the apostles, it was Jesus Christ himself working through the apostles to build his church. The title of this sermon is Christ Purifies His Church. Christ Purifies His Church. And to be quite candid and quite transparent, this was not a fun sermon to prepare for. I did not actually want to prepare for this sermon. So as I'm preaching, I pray you would even pray for me that I would, my mouth would be clear and that the word of God would be explained and that the spirit of God would grip our hearts. Let's pray together. Father, we come before you kind of trepidatiously. We know that we have free access to you. We know that in Christ we are always welcome, but there is a fear, a terror that the one we worship is not our buddy. He's not our pal. He's not our chum. He is the great and wonderful God who split the Red Sea, who created the heavens and the earth. And so, Father, we come with wonder. We come with delight. We come as children of God, but we come with a holy and respectful fear as well. And so we pray, Father, that you would help us to hear your word. I pray, God, you would help me to speak it straight. Lord, you desire Jesus Christ. You are not only building your church. You are not only drawing people to yourself. You purify your church. And so, God, have your way in our hearts and in our minds. Forgive us of our sinful ways, God, and let us run to Christ. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. It's a big chunk, Acts chapter 4 and verse 32. We're going to start. And the congregation of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and not one of them claimed that anything belonging to him was his own, but all things were common property to them. With great power, the apostles were giving testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and abundant grace was upon them all. For there was not a needy person among them, for all who were owners of land or houses would sell them, bring the proceeds of the sales, and lay them at the apostles' feet. And they would be distributed to each as any had need. Now Joseph, a Levite of Cyprian birth, was also called Barnabas by the apostles, which translated means son of encouragement, and who owned a tract of land, sold it, brought the money, laid it at the apostles' feet. Chapter 5, verse 1. But a man named Ananias and his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property, kept back some of the price for himself. With his wife's full knowledge and bringing a portion of it, he laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart? to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back some of the price of the land. While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not under your control? Why is it that you have conceived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to men, 
but to God. And as he heard these words, Ananias fell down and breathed his last, and a great fear came over all who heard of it. The young men got up, covered him up, and after carrying him out, they buried him. Verse 7, now there elapsed an interval of about three hours, and his wife came in, not knowing what had happened, and Peter responded to her, tell me whether you sold the land for such and such a price. And she said, yes, that was a price. Then Peter said to her, why is it that you have agreed together to put the spirit of the Lord to the test? Behold, the feet of those who have, who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out as well. And immediately she fell at his feet and breathed her last. And the young men came in and found her dead. And they carried her out, buried her beside her husband. Verse 11. And great fear came over the whole church and over all who heard of these things. Christ purifies his church. As we're going through this, the, in the book of Acts, it lists many firsts. Many firsts. There's the first indwelling of the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter 2 as Peter is preaching and all of a sudden there's the first revelation of the gift of tongues. And then there's the first sermon Peter himself started to preach and there was the first time that he, it was a Christian sermon that was revealing who Christ was. And in the midst of this, there's this wave of good morale and this wave of high motivation. And now the writer, Luke, inspired by the Holy Spirit, is now going to write the first sin in the church. You see, man will even sin in the church. Even if he is saved, he can sin and sin heinously in the church. What's wonderful about it is that God, he doesn't... He doesn't hide certain faces of the church. If you notice in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, if there is sin, it is called out. David, who is a man after God's own heart, committed adultery, had, uh, had, uh, had uh, the wife, uh, the husband of Bathsheba killed. Moses, who was angry uh, at the coming of the promised land, hit the rock three times and was not able to enter into the promised land. See, when there is a, a biblical character, he does not hide the sin. And here, it shows its validity, its veracity, its truthfulness. I don't want to be told a lie that if you go into church that everything's going to be fine and dandy. That's not true. Being in a church sometimes is very, very difficult. Living with one another, rubbing elbows is very difficult. It can, be very, it can be very blessed, but when there is sin, it ruins it all. It is like flies in the ointment. It is like foxes in the vineyard. Man will sin and sin heinously in the church. But Christ will not be mocked. He will have a pure church. Now, God gave this passage to you so that you would live a holy and authentic life before God and for the good of the church. God gave this passage so that you would live a holy and authentic life before God and for the good of the church. 
This passage isn't simply here for us to say, oh, that's too bad for Ananias and Sapphira and move on our way. It's supposed to strike at our hearts for us to live in a godly manner, in a holy manner, that we live in his very presence. There are three warnings you have to pay attention to. Three warnings in this text as we go through this. And the first warning in verses 32 to 37, if you're following along in the notes, is number one, watch carefully because temptation is around the corner. Watch carefully because temptation is around the corner. Now, what is interesting in this story is it doesn't start with the sin of Ananias and Sapphira. It actually starts on a good note, kind of like RBC. You understand? We just had an anniversary. We had a baptism. There was new members. We're, uh, we're riding this crest of a wave, right? But you always need to be careful, brothers and sisters, of yourself, of, of your loved ones. You always need to be careful and watch carefully because temptation is around the corner. And I think this is what the point is of this first section of 32 to 37. The young church was thriving and growing in the Lord. Peter was doing miracles. Folks were coming to Christ. There was being baptisms and many were being added to the church. First, I mean, there's some, some fantastic things happening in the church. Notice they were strongly unified. They were strongly unified. Notice it says, and the congregation of those who believed were of one heart and one soul. Notice, what is it that causes the one heart and one soul? It is this body, this doctrine of what we believe in Christ, of who Christ is. It is who we put our trust in. If folks tell you that doctrine divides, they don't know what they're talking about. The Bible says that uh, we are to be diligent to preserve the faith. That as uh, in Ephesians, that God has given us pastors and teachers so that we would have the unity of the faith, articular, the faith, so that we think the same things about Christ, the important things on Christ. We hold the same things about Christ. The things about Jesus enlivens our hearts, ravishes our hearts. The things that Jesus hates, we hate as well. They were of one heart, one mind. They were solid together. Sounds like a strong church, right? Secondly, they practice personal stewardship. They practice personal stewardship. Notice, this wasn't just a church that said we believe this. They weren't the frozen chosen. They were a people who actually believed and lived it. Notice, it says here, not one of them claimed that anything belonging to him was his own, but all things were common property to them. They knew the verses in the Psalms that God owns the cattle of a thousand hills. They knew the verses that God's riches are, are all his. They own those. They knew, they, this is the Christian, the Christian principle that I really, in the scheme of things, I don't own anything. I'm not talking about communism. I'm not talking about socialism. That's not what I'm talking about. What I am talking about is that God ultimately owns everything. Isn't that true? He owns where I live. He owns my car. He owns my money. He owns everything that I have. He owns it all. That is the Christian teaching. But that I am only a steward of it. Steward meaning I only take responsibility. I manage it for him. That's what a steward is. And so what he's, 
what the text is saying is, not one of them claimed that anything belonging to him was his own. But all things were common property to them. No, they didn't put all their things in a pot. And all of a sudden that we distributed that or all of us lived in a commune. I was looking at this, um, I was looking at this documentary about Rajneesh in Oregon in the 60s and 70s. No, we don't live like that. I don't think God calls us to live like that. This is a voluntary giving, a voluntary thankfulness giving to God. They practice personal stewardship. So how could this sin come into play? They were strongly unified. They thought the same things about Jesus Christ. They believed the same things about Jesus Christ. They practiced personal stewardship. Notice, they received dynamic preaching. Wow. They had good preaching. Notice the text says, And with great power the apostles were giving witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And with great power, he says, when the apostles taught, it came with a force, a forcefulness, and a persuasiveness that could only be attributed to God. That could only be attributed to the Holy Spirit. Notice, as they were teaching and as they were preaching, they were giving witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And you know, if you've been here for a couple, even a couple Sundays, what does this mean? That God has created the heavens and the earth, and man has sinned against him. And because we have sinned against them, there is a gulf that forever divides us in fellowship with God. We could never cross over. We could never jump far enough. We could never meet his perfect standard. But because of that, this is what the, the apostles were preaching, that Christ came down to die on the cross for your sins. And if you would but trust in him, he will save you from all of that. And his blood will account for your sins and your sins will be placed on him. And you will be forever justified. That is, you'll be forever acquitted, counted as righteous because of what Christ has done. That is what the gospel is. That's what the apostles preached. That's what we preach here. And they kept preaching it. Imagine, imagine Peter preaching. I want to go to that service. Imagine the apostles preaching. What was their seminary? They walked with Jesus. Oh, I got an MDiv here, or I got my THM here. I walked with Jesus. Whoa, I want to go to that church. I imagine he had apostolic healing as well. Later on in Acts, you'll see that simply his handkerchief would be passed around and people would be healed. His shadow would pass on people and they would be healed. Paul would come along and say, uh, demon, come out from that woman. And the demon would come out. Man, that's a, that was a pretty miraculous church. And folks were getting saved. It says that they were being added. Their number was kept being added. 3,000, 4,000. It kept adding and adding. Man, what a dynamic preaching church. So this church, you got to see the momentum going with this church. This church is strongly unified. This church was practicing personal stewardship. This per church was receiving dynamic preaching. Are you following with me? This church enjoyed rich blessing, and it says, and abundant grace was upon them all. 
God was blessing their efforts. God was blessing the ministry. People were coming to know him. They experienced the satisfying and the sustaining grace of Christ every day. Man. They enjoyed rich blessing. They also were generously giving. Look at verses 34 and 35 again. I'll call your attention to there. Chapter 4, verses 34 and 35. For there was not a needy person among them. For all who were owners of land or houses would sell them and bring the proceeds of the sales and lay them at the apostles' feet and they would be distributed to each as any had need. What was happening there, if you recall, back in Acts chapter 2, many of them traveled uh, for the Passover, right, for Pentecost. Many of them came for Pentecost, excuse me. And as they came, they were encountered the gospel. They knew that Christ was the Messiah. They got saved, and now they just wanted to grow in the faith. This happens. I see this. People say, well, that's so miraculous. Why would someone move to just to go to a church? Oh, I see it all the time, brothers and sisters. If Christ is that worthy, they do that. If Christ is that worthy, they do that. If he is that treasured, they get up and go. And so these folks are there. They have no job. They're trying to get established. They want to grow in Christ, right? Imagine that. They just got up and left. They say, uh, now I'm trying to get my feet, feet uh, back in the door. I'm trying to establish myself having a business. It's very much, it's very much like the church plant when we came here. We were helping each other out. I don't have a place to say, oh, stay in my place. Just jam a million kids in one room. We'll be okay, right? We'll be all right, right? Just find a place and God's going to provide for us, but we got to work together, right? They were generously giving, but they notice what, what mark they're giving. It says, for there was not a needy person among them. They gave impartially. This is amazing. First, you have to notice that there was, a need, there was a needy person. They identified the need of the person, okay? Later on, we're going to see in the book, in, in later books, you're going to see people taking advantage of that, okay? People not working, right? People not getting jobs. But here, there was a real need, and they gave impartially to fit, to, impartially to fit that need. I don't have a place to say, okay, come over here. We don't have any food tonight. Okay, here's some Costco chicken, right? I don't know. I don't. Uh, I don't know if I could make this bill. Don't worry. We're gonna pull, We're gonna give you some money to make you meet this bill. It was a fantastically giving church. They gave sacrificially. Look at verse thirty-four and thirty-five again. For all who were owners of land or houses would sell them and bring the proceeds of the sales. Man, think about that. You have a nice piece of prime property in Carlsbad. Think about that. Encinitas. And you just gave it up. Wow. You gave it up to meet needs in the church. Why? Because I love Christ so much. He died on the cross for me. And I want to I give to them. Now. They gave sacrificially. So it was a, an immense amount. Notice they gave selflessly. They gave under the delegation of spiritual authority. Notice he says here in uh, verses 34 and 35, and lay them at the apostles' feet and they would be distributed to each as they had need. Notice laying at the apostles' feet. They gave under the delegation of spiritual authority given by leaders. 
They placed the giving under the control of the spiritual leaders who were accountable to God for their proper use. It didn't, they did not give merely to be noticed by men. Some folks only want to give to what they want to give. They want to specify exactly how much money is to be used for what they want to be used for. True giving is not to be self-serving in that nature. They gave and they entrusted the money to the leaders of the church. They even, so notice, this church, it doesn't sound like anything's going to go wrong, right? They were strongly unified. They practiced personal stewardship. They received dynamic preaching. They enjoyed rich blessing. They were generously giving. They had living examples is the last one. They had living examples. Look at verse 36 and 37. And Joseph, a Levite of Cyprian birth, who was also called Barnabas by the apostles, which translated means son of encouragement, and who owned a tract of land, sold it and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Joseph, a Levite of Cyprian birth. Let me break this down, okay? He was a Levite, which means he was part of the priestly tribe of Israel. The Levites at that time could not uh, technically own land because God was their portion. But yet, here, for some reason, they were either, it was either not enforced or he didn't listen to it. He still had some land. He was a Cyprian of birth, okay? What that means is he was born on the island of Cyprus, which is just off of Greece. Uh, it's, a, it's a fantastic island. Don't ask me, but I know there's good spearfishing there, okay? Just don't ask me why. I just know that, okay? But it's, it's this Greek island, um, and we don't know if the land that he owned was on Cyprus or was on, in Turkey or something like that. But if you think about it, imagine... Imagine if, his name was also called Barnabas, if Barnabas owned, and he's a Cyprian of birth, imagine if his, that land was in Cyprus, he had, man, he had island land. Did you ever think about that? He gave that up. If it was an island land, still, it was an immense sacrifice, right? They called him Barnabas, which means son of encouragement. We, we're going to know later on, he was the guy who picked up Paul and believed he was saved while no, no other people believed. He was the one who brought him back. He was the one who encouraged him. He was the one who later on fell into a row with Paul over John Mark. He gave John Mark a second chance. Paul would not. Paul was wrong. Okay. He gave John Mark a second chance, and then they reconciled later on. But all this to say, what a sterling example Barnabas would be with, later on he would be with Paul and he would travel all over, risk his life on these missionary trips. He just sold his land and gave it to them and laid it at the apostles' feet. What could possibly go wrong? No matter how good it is, brothers and sisters, okay? No matter how happy you are, brothers and sisters, we must always be vigilant. Sin can take what is a blessing and turn it into a curse. Sin can distort, disfigure, defile even the most beautiful things. This solid, biblical, loving, generous church was unaware of what lurked behind the corner. This is why Paul says, be on the alert, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong. This is why he says in Ephesians chapter 6, he says, with all prayer and petition, pray at all times in the spirit. And with this in view, be on the alert with all perseverance and petition for all the saints. This is why Peter says to the younger men in the congregation, 
Be subject to your elders and all of you clothe yourself with humility towards one another. For God is opposed to the proud and gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you at the proper time. And then he says, be of sober spirit. Listen, listen, brothers and sisters, please. Be of sober spirit. Be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls about like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Peter knew firsthand in his own life how unchecked and unrepented pride can creep in and sin would abound. He said, I'll never leave you, and he was the one who denied the Christ. You have to think about this, brothers and sisters, okay? In the perfect garden, there is a tempting serpent. Was there not? Overlooking the promised land, there was a temptation of anger for Moses, striking the rock three times. In the unified country of Israel, there was a temptation of lust for David, which forever split the country. For every Sunday, there's a Monday. You get it? For every vacation, there is a temptation. Please, go on vacation, refresh, recharge, but never take a break from God. And let me tell you this, church, for every ministry success, there is a ministry pitfall. Is this right, man? You come back from a summer camp and it's, everyone is beaming, right? And all of a sudden you see kids fall into sin. They're not being alert. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, he says, verse 12, Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed, what? Lest he falls. Lest he falls. So despite the very healthy condition of the early church, pride reared its ugly head and brought with it its destructive effects. So to live a holy and authentic life before God for the good of the church... Watch carefully because temptation is around the corner. Second, repent quickly because God already knows, okay? Repent quickly because God already knows. And you're going to see this very sad, sad story of Ananias and Sapphira given plenty of chances to repent and they don't take it. It is a... Strong warning for us, for our secret sins that we have, our sinful motivations of why we do things. Even though we may be saved in Christ, yes, we can sin this way. And the way out, brothers and sisters, is to confess and repent and get right with God and receive Jesus's, Jesus's abounding grace again. Every morning I need His grace again. I need to be at the foot of his cross again. This couple had ample opportunity to repent and decided not to every step of the way. Verse 1, chapter 5 and verse 1. Chapter 5 and verse 1. A man named Ananias and with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property. And kept back some of the price for himself with his wife's full knowledge. And bringing a portion of it, he laid it at the apostles' feet. 
it doesn't look so bad when we take a look at it. Yeah, well, they still gave, right? Why is this so bad? We have to look at what exactly happened. The couple saw, you got to imagine, Ananias and Sapphira, they were there. They saw what was happening in the church. They saw the blessing, the love, the encouragement. Okay? They were just saved as well. I believe they were saved. But sin distorts blessings into curses. They saw the generosity of the church and they saw the generosity. Imagine, they saw Barnabas. And Barnabas didn't do it for any other reason, simply for the glory of Christ and for the people. What they saw was people were probably thanking Barnabas. you got to imagine this. Wow, Barnabas, how could you do that? That was fantastic. How generous of you, Barnabas. They're they, they sitting in the back. Barnabas, that was so kind and loving of you. Barnabas, you're so generous. Barnabas, that was a noble act you did. The proper response would have been, praise the Lord, Barnabas, for Christ put in your heart to sell such a valuable piece of property for his glory. That would have been the proper response. Amen? But what was their sin? Ananias and Sapphira, here's their sin, okay? Ananias and Sapphira conspired together to sell a piece of property and lie, stating that all the proceeds were being donated with the express purpose of being seen as sacrificial and spiritual. So it wasn't that they held back the money. Who cares? That money was theirs all the time. It was that they were giving and telling people we gave the whole lot of the money so that now we want the accolades that Barnabas got. We want to be looked at as spiritual. Imagine that. And now they take the thing that is supposed to glorify Christ, reverse it to shine the light on them. It's damnable. It is, if you're to boil it down, I want you in this church to think highly of me. That's what I want. I want you to think highly of me. I want to gain in stature in the church. And Ananias thought to himself, let me take what is to glorify God and bless the church and use it to glorify me so that I will be praised for my kindness and spirituality. I want to look spiritual like Barnabas does. Ananias thought he could buy spiritual maturity and reputation. Ananias wanted to bring glory to himself. And Sapphira, verse 2, notice he says, with his wife's full knowledge, she knew full well. She went along with the lie to appear spiritual and mature as well. Though Ananias should have led to holiness, Sapphira has her own guilt in this. She didn't say anything. She covered the sin. And that's why in verse 9 it says, Why is it that you have agreed together to put the Spirit of the Lord to test? They both, in concert, decided to rob God of all the glory and take what is to be given to God to glorify themselves through deceit to appear godly and mature. The revelation of sin, verses 3 to 10. 
This is not a fun story, brothers and sisters. Verses 3 to 10 of chapter 5. Notice he says, the sin of Ananias. Ananias, look at verse 4. It was, his sin was absolutely unnecessary to begin with. His sin was absolutely unnecessary to begin with. Notice he says, Verse 4, while it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? This is what Peter is saying, okay? You could do whatever you want with it. He was not forcing them to give. He was not leveraging them to give. He was saying, you could do whatever you want with it. And then notice, he says, and even after it was sold, was it not under your control? You could, still could have given half. You could have given 25%. It wouldn't have mattered. It matters between your heart and God. You didn't have to tell us you gave us all so that you could appear spiritual. Why is it that you have conceived this deed in your heart? Notice it's clearly rooted from his heart. Sin starts in the heart. James says when lust uh, clings to temptation, then sin is conceived in the heart. His behavior is because of something that's already yearning in the heart. And in here it was pride. Pride and hypocrisy. He wanted to be looked at as spiritual. You got you to gotta imagine. He thought this white lie told to the church won't matter. Maybe he thought, God doesn't care since I'm giving anyway. So what if I said it's all, it's all of it? I'm helping the church. That's all that matters. Or maybe he thought God cares really about saving people. This is really not as sinful as some of those other folks, but this is pretty good actually. Notice what Peter says when he, when he uh, rebukes him. He says, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? Look at verse 4. You have not lied to men, but to God. I think what the way that we in our hearts minimize sin is we think we're just simply hoodwinking people. We're just kind of pulling the wool over certain people's eyes. Brothers and sisters, we don't see sin as utterly sinful the way we need to. Jeremiah 17.9 says what? It says, for the heart is desperately wicked and deceitful. Who can know it? We lie to ourselves. We call sin. Oh, it's not so bad. It's not so bad. It's bad in other people. But when it's with me, it's not so bad. You ever notice that? It's bad with other people's kids. But when it's with my kids, it's not so bad. You make excuses, right? Peter addresses this, and he says, when you sin, ultimately, ultimately, it is high-handed treason against God himself. This is why David says in Psalm 51, Be gracious to me, O God, according to thy loving kindness, according to the greatness of thy compassion. 
Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions. And my sin is ever before me. Against thee. What does he say? Thee only. I have sinned. David. What are you talking about? You sinned against Bathsheba. You sinned against Uriah the Hittite. You sinned against the people of Israel. He says, against thee, God, and thee only I have sinned. What does that mean? What he's saying is, in an ultimate, ultimate sense, every sin that I commit is before a holy God. And we think we're just fooling people. We think we're getting away with it. See, part of the delusion of sin is you don't really see sin's sinfulness. You don't see that lying for your kids to be underage to get a discount is not lying to the company. It's lying to God. You see? That lying that there was traffic, because that's why I'm late, when you just didn't wake up in time, is not lying to your friends. It's not lying to work. It's lying to God. Do you see it? Against what? Thee and thee only I have sinned. When your child doesn't obey you immediately and they have full understanding of what you said, they're not cute. That is a high-handed treason against God since you are given authority as their parent. Brothers and sisters, we do not see sin as utterly sinful. And Sapphira went along with it. So as we continue, we see here in and uh, in verse 5, and he heard these words, and Ananias fell down and breathed his last. And a great fear came over all who heard him. The young men got up and covered him up, and after burying him, they, carrying him out, they buried him. It's common to do it right away, back then in the, in the Near East. But this is what happens. Sometimes God does take the lives of sinning believers to purify the church. Yes, he does. This is not, I understand this is not a popular message. I understand you could go to a mega church and you will not hear that, okay? I understand that, okay? But I am called to preach the word of God. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 11. <laughs> 2 Corinthians chapter 11, this is crazy. God is jealous for his church, right? Excuse me, 1 Corinthians. You go, you go to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. I'll go to 2 Corinthians, okay? 2 Corinthians chapter 11. 1 Corinthians 11, you just stay there, okay? Just stay there, okay? 2 Corinthians 11 says, I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy. I am betrothed to you, one husband, that to Christ I might present to you as a pure virgin. Paul was jealous for the church to be betrothed to Christ alone, right? But look at uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 11. And we're here every, every first Sunday of the month, aren't we not? Sometimes we skip over that scary verse over there. We know that this is my body, verse 24, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. We know verse 25, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as you often drink it in remembrance of me. And we usually stop right there and we go on our Sunday and have potluck in the back. Keep reading. 
Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner, and I take the unworthy manner, meaning with unrepentant sin in your heart. You knowingly are, unrepent, are not repenting. You're not confessing. You may even have something against someone, and you are not willing to reconcile. And you take communion anyway, which is to symbolize our unity together. Okay? A man... He says, shall be guilty of the body and the blood of himself, but a man must examine himself, and in so doing, he is to eat of the bread and drink of the cup. Verse 29. Here it is. Okay. And I think this is how solemn we should think about communion. I really do. For he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself. For if he does not judge the body rightly, verse 30, for this reason many among you are weak. And sick. And a number sleep. What is he saying? He's saying sometimes the consequence of even taking communion in an unworthy manner is sickness or even death. Now this is how you, let me stop you. This is how you, please do not apply this text like saying, you're sick or I know why you're sick. That's why you're sick. I know why you're sick because of this verse. No, that, you are not a prophet. That's not why. This verse is for you to examine yourself, not for you to examine someone else. Okay? That's not how you apply that verse. But all this to say, brothers and sisters, if God calls us to even take communion in such a serious manner, should not our whole lives be one of submissive worship? And if you sin, brothers and sisters, this is going to happen. If you sin, confess and repent right away. Stop it right away. Peter was giving Ananias and Sapphira a chance. Did you not sell it for this and this a price? He could have said, no, I lied. And he didn't. Yep, that's what. Yep. Aren't I spiritual? Aren't I godly? Aren't I faithful? All the time, God knows. God knows your heart. Oh, it's frightening, isn't it? Now, don't think you don't do this. Yes, you do. And I repent, I do too. Actions do count, brothers and sisters, but motives count too. Okay? From the outside, Ananias and Sapphira did the exact thing Barnabas did. The exact thing, right? Most churches would congratulate him, but God goes to the heart. Why do you do it? Why do you give? Why do you serve? Matters, brothers and sisters. Not just the outward form. This is why when you, when you are discipling your kids, when you are raising your kids, don't just shoot for the outward behavior form. Go for their heart. Apply the gospel to their heart. Because it's all, in 1 Corinthians 3, it's all going to burn up if you do it in the wrong motive. Now, 
Strive for honesty and integrity in Christ. Confess and repent right away. It is an amazing thing. It is amazing. Thing. I got to turn. So you see this. You got to see this interplay of the heart. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 3. 1 Corinthians chapter 3. We have a little bit of time. So let's hustle over there. 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Paul is preaching. He is rebuking folks who say, I'm of Apollos, I'm of Paul, they're a better preacher, uh, as if that person saved you, right? He says, verse 9, we are God's fellow workers, you are God's field, God's building. Verse 10, according to the grace of God, which was given to me, like a wise master builder, I laid a foundation and another is building on it. But each man, each man, brothers and sisters, that's you, each of you. Must be careful how he builds. No man can lay a foundation other than the one that is laid, which is Christ. Now, verse 12. Now, if any man builds on the foundation with gold, silver, and precious stones, wood, hay, and straw, there's different kinds, okay? One class is jewels and precious metal. The other one is wood, hay, and straw, okay? And here's the test. Each man's work will become evident, for the day will show it, because it is to be revealed with fire, and the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. If any man's work which he has built on it remains, he will receive a reward. If any man's work is burned up, he will suffer loss. But he himself will be saved. Listen. Yet so as through the fire. You could be saved. This is now, this is not a, this is not a fire of judgment in hell. This is a fire of judgment of your works now. And what God says is you can be saved and have nothing to show for it at the end because you had the wrong motives when you were serving. That is an incredible thought. That even as, as one man could be setting up chairs and, the ve- and another man can be setting up chairs right next to each other, one is giving glory to God, the other one is going to, all of his work is going to be burned up. He's doing it for the wrong motives. His heart is not in it. Uh, that's scary, isn't it? This came, this came to a fruition in my life. I, and, I, and I need to tell you, there was a time in my life, oh, I was teaching Sunday school, teaching home group. I think I, 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 think I gained another 100 pounds. I'm, that's why I'm bald, right? I was in seminary. I had two, two jobs. And I started to lose the joy. I wasn't communing with God anymore. I was just trying to finish my assignments and just get there. You know? I wasn't walking. I think I was just kind of just, I did the bare minimum. And my wife lovingly rebuked me. And you know what she said? Simple. Remember who you're doing it for. Remember who you're doing it for. And I wept, got on my face, asked God to forgive me for only doing the outside part and not the inside part. We look at the appearance of man. God what? Looks at the heart. Brothers and sisters, Do not just have a shell of religiosity. Do not have a shell of service, a shell of giving. Where is your heart? 
Does he have it? Or are you like? You say, I would never be like Ananias and Sapphira. Every time you try and serve God and your heart and your motive is not to bring glory to Christ, you are just like Ananias and Sapphira. Praise God he doesn't zap you now. Amen. And praise God there is Christ every morning. I get on my feet and say, I failed again, God. Give me your grace today. I want to serve you. Give me your grace today. I got to go to this job I hate. Give me your grace today so I could be your ambassador at work. I got to take this test and I know I'm going to fail. Give me your grace, God. Give me your grace. I have to, I have to teach my kids. Give me your grace, God. Give me your grace. So, to live authentically before God and for the good of the church, number one, watch carefully because temptation is around the corner. All of us need to be watching. All of us need to be watching. Don't fall asleep like the disciples when Christ told them to stay awake. Right? Number two, repent quickly because God already knows. You're not fooling anyone. When you sin, you sin before his face. And number three, heed closely because God is utterly holy. Heed closely because God is utterly holy. The word there in chapter 5 and verse 11, it says, Actually, I wrote to you not to, oh, excuse me, where am I at? Back to Acts. I need to go to Acts. Acts chapter 5. And great fear came over the whole church and over all who heard of these things. you got to imagine this. Ananias lies. He lies again in front of Peter and the church. Notice verse 5. Ananias breathed his last and great fear came over who heard of it. He died. Okay. Now there were elapsed an interval of about three hours. you got to think about this. This is a frightening Bible study. It went on for another three hours, and I bet they just looked at each other like this. And I imagine Sapphira came in, and all the other people were right there, and I kind of imagine it's like uh, when my kids, like my, my older kids are telling the younger kids, do not dishonor mom. You're going to die. <laughs> you don't know what you're doing, right? It's kind of like that, right? But, of course, they don't die. But for they're, they're probably thinking, don't do it. Don't do it. Oh, she did it. Boom, she dies. Uh, that's a Bible study you will never forget. Oh, my goodness, right? <laughs> oh, my goodness. Uh, come back next Wednesday. What? I'm going to cry. <laughs> right? <laughs> Imagine that, right? And now, verse 11, great fear came over the whole church and over all who heard these things. The word there, phobos, fear, is a fear, a terror, a dread, an awe, a respect. It's used in Acts chapter 2 when they kept feeling a sense of awe that God was actually moving in their midst. It is a realization that we live and move and breathe in the very presence of God himself. 
It's like Peter falling to his knees saying, depart from me, for I am a sinful man. It's like Isaiah saying, depart from me, for I am a man of unclean lips. It is now the people are learning from this. And my point here is to heed closely because God is utterly holy. Learn from this, brothers and sisters. There are two ways you could learn in this Christian life. Two ways. You could learn through instruction and teaching, or you could learn through experience. Okay. Sadly, I've been into two, both schools. Okay. But learning through instruction and through Scripture is a lot easier than learning through experience. And when I say experience, it's when God takes you to the woodshed. He loves His children, and He will take you to the woodshed. I urge you. Learn by teaching and instruction. 1 Corinthians 10 says, Do not be idolaters as some of them were. He was talking about Israel. The people sat down to eat and drink and stood up to play. And then he says, Nor grumble as some of them, nor let the Lord. And then it says, Now these things happened to them. He's talking about the judgment of Israel. They were written for our instruction upon whom the ends of the ages have come. Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take, take heed lest he falls. What Paul says is, here's an example. It's an example of those who've disobeyed. Okay, Don't follow that disobedience and don't think you'll ever fall. Here's a, here is a, here is a one, one hint that you're on slippery slope. When you say in your mind, and you hear a sin and you go, I would never do that. I would never do that. Like, let him who thinks he stands take heed, what? Lest he fall. Paul says uh, this happens afterwards now. I mean, we don't have people, uh, we don't have uh, apostles now, but even in 1 Timothy chapter 5, Paul says this is the same effect happens when church discipline occurs. Do not receive an accusation against an elder except on the basis of two or three witnesses. Those who continue in sin, he says, rebuke in the presence of all so that the rest may also be fearful of sinning. Well, why are good church, why are bad churches continue to go on? You ever think about that? You ever think about that? Christ lets them go and removes the lampstand of the gospel. People may be still going, but the gospel is no longer loved. The Bible is no longer read. His commands are no longer obeyed. And Christ is no longer cherished. And let me just give you a, a story about how does this verse 11 work. When, we, when, when church discipline occurs, this is, the, this is the worst church discipline I've ever seen. Okay, I don't want to be part of this church discipline, but this is the worst church discipline that has ever occurred. Okay? But when church discipline occurs, in Matthew chapter 16, Jesus says the goal for church discipline is to win your brother. It's not to embarrass. It's not to shun. It's simply to win them, to reconcile them back to God and to others. Okay? So that's the goal, right? But another fruit of of discipline in the church is it causes 
the bodies of the church to discipline themselves, to purify themselves. Now, I remember this, this is how Christ purifies the church. This is one of the ways. It's through his word, it's through preaching, it's through church discipline, one of the ways. I remember we were in back home, um, my, my hometown, there was a guy who was caught, he was cheating on his wife. He was disciplined. Um, they kept asking him to repent, he would not repent. They kept asking him, he was disciplined. We prayed for their reconciliation and their restoration. I don't know if he ever came back to Christ. But the other effect is that it purifies the church. It causes us to look at our own lives and to say, there I go but the grace of God. What kind of deception in my life has, have I allowed that I'm not seeing God speak to me? And you know what it did? There was nothing, there was no problem with me and Jeanette. Our relationship was not endangered. But what I did was I start, started to skip on date nights. I got too much to do. You know, I didn't have those conversations, nightly conversations as I should have. I just got right, right to work. But when that happened, it caused me to see I am not doing right. I'm not loving my wife. I commit to you, Christ, to you, Christ, that I will have my date nights regularly. I will speak with my wife regularly, communicate with her regularly, because there I go but the grace of God. Do you see how that works? Discipline purifies the church. Christ purifies the church through discipline. Okay, let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you so much. What a difficult sermon, not a fun sermon. I pray, Father, that you would help us to look at our own lives, to hate hypocrisy, to desire authenticity and a genuine walk. Help us, God. Help us to be approachable. Help us to be folks who will confess and repent of our sins. Help us to sing. Thank you so much for today. We praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.